This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and we're here on the Theology Corner Podcast Network. If you've spent any amount of time on the internet lately, you've probably heard of Jordan Peterson, a charismatic professor of psychology turned guru dad to the discontented young men of the Western world. His meteoric rise has been swift, prompted by his refusal to use non-binary pronouns, and he is now a figurehead of the anti-PC, anti-social justice warrior movement. The New York Times has described him as the most influential public intellectual of the Western world. Peterson is a complicated figure, and I'm not interested in reducing him to heroic or villainous caricatures. His most recent book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, which is also the most read book on Amazon right now, is in places genuinely helpful. Two or three pieces of the advice he offers have been truly helpful to me, and I think his self-authoring course has some merits. But go an inch beneath his often obvious advice, and you run into some problems. I normally don't have an entire show dedicated to the critique of a public figure, but I think Jordan Peterson and his wild success need to be understood. I've been searching for some cogent criticism of Peterson, and Douglas Lane has offered some of the best critiques i found on the web. Douglas Lane is the publisher of Zero Books, a novelist, a podcaster, and most recently, a YouTuber. His most recent novel, entitled Bash Bash Revolution, received a starred review in Booklist, and his previous novel, After the Saucers Landed, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. Douglas Lane is also the host of the Zero Books podcast. So, Douglas, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me on. So, is there anything I missed in that intro? Anything important that you think I need to add? N- no, not really. I think that that that's what I think. It, it seems like you pulled that from my own website, so that's what I want that, people to know about me. So absolutely, <laughs> sounds good. So let's just jump right into it. Would you describe yourself as a Marxist? I would. I would describe myself as a wannabe Marxist, actually, because. <laughs> um, I, I've read some Marx. I've read Capital, Volume 1. I've read Critique of the Gotha Program. I've read excerpts of other writings of, of Marx. Years and years ago, I read the Communist Manifesto. I haven't actually read it since I've actually become interested in Marx. So on that level, like if I'm up against somebody who spent years and years reading and studying Marx, I feel ill-prepared to call myself a Marxist, even though compared to many Marxists, I'm more well-read because I've actually read Capital. The other reason I call myself a wannabe Marxist is because the history of Marxism is, well, not a good, not good. Uh, and the even on the even Western Marxism is riven with sectarianism and uh, with conflict that I want to overcome. And, and one way to do that is to, I, I, I at least try to do that by saying, look, I am working on understanding Marx and coming up with a politics based on his critique of political economy, based on his critique of capitalism. I do not have what I'm seeking yet. I'm mm. a wannabe because some things still need to be developed. Some things need to be rethought. And I don't want to align myself with any particular sect at the moment. Um, mm. There were times where I was enamored with um, Marxist humanism as a general tendency, and I would say that I'm still uh, enamored with that. Yeah, so that's the kind of Marxist I am. And the the other thing I always say when this comes up is I became interested in Marx and became a wannabe Marxist in response to the 2008 financial crisis. Up until that point, I was what I would call liberal anarchist. In other words, I liked Noam Chomsky. I listened to Democracy Now. I was against U.S. imperialism. And uh, the thought of myself as part of a revolutionary struggle to create an ill-defined utopian anarchist world that would never really exist, but that I kind of – that motivated my dreams, but nothing that I did. So that's – and then the financial crisis happened, and I realized that my ideology wasn't adequate to handle reality, what was happening right in front of me. I didn't understand what was going on, and – started to to look for explanations as to why that had happened and and marx marx's critique of political economy and his understanding of capitalism seemed like the best out there and seemed coherent to me so cool i became interested in that 
Awesome. Well, so since you have so eloquently put all your cards on the table, let me put mine on the table. Okay. Um, so I have a, a degree in vocal performance. I'm a yoga teacher and I manage a grocery store. So if there's anyone who has like zero qualification to talk about this shit, it's me. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, you describe you describe yourself as a wannabe Marxist. I think I would be I would be like a wannabe wannabe Marxist. I'm right. I'm still figuring I'm still figuring this shit out. You know, I I first started listening to you talk to people like Michael Brooks and Natalie from ContraPoints. I mean, people who are way smarter than I am. People think I'm smart because I have this deep, sultry voice that puts them to sleep at night. Yeah. Um, and so they think I'm smarter than I actually am, but I'm really not. So vocal, that's what vocal coaching is for. That's what vocal right. coaching is for. And so <laughs> I, I have this this four-year degree in in voice so I can do magical things with my voice, but I'm not actually that informed. I am professionally curious on this podcast. and I think that's a great place to be, actually. And I think more people who consider themselves experts should be professionally curious. Absolutely. Well. Yeah. And, and I have to be professionally curious because I can't do anything else. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's the only thing I can do. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll relax then. I'm, oh, I'm totally. Feeling... <laughs> you can say something, you can say something absolutely false or wrong or hideous and, and it would just go right over my head and then I'll get angry emails from people for not pushing back. Okay. Okay, great. So, so let's talk about Jordan. <laughs> so let's something, talk... something to look forward to. You have something right. to look forward to. So let's talk to, let's talk about Jordan Peterson. Okay. You kind of first came up on my radar because it, we're in this cultural moment where, where Jordan Peterson is capturing the imagination of a lot of people, especially guys around my age. I'm 29. He is capturing the imagination of a lot of young men across the Western world. And honestly, and I have to confess this, when I first encountered Peterson, I was enamored of him. I thought he was just the best fucking thing ever. I thought he was amazing. I was enthralled by his vision of religion. I was enthralled by how charismatic he is, how persuasive he is, how stern he is. You know, I, I think I was drawn into his orbit for a lot of the same reasons why a lot of other young men are. I'm, I'm drawn, I'm easily persuaded, I'm kind of a gullible person, and I'm drawn drawn to charismaticism. I'm, I'm drawn to charisma and to passion and to stern father figures. <laughs> like, I have a thing for daddy. What could I say? <laughs> you know? And, yeah. but, you know, as I have thought about it more and as I've let Peterson kind of percolate, I've, I've become more skeptical of him and I've become more critical of him. Because he is such a huge figure, I think we need to really, really examine what he says. I've been searching the internet for good criticism. Now, in the aftermath of his book, there are more criticisms out there, but I've been searching for good criticism of him and you have offered some of the best. Most people who have criticized Peterson over the past two years have just, it's all been variations of how dare you? <laughs> you know, it's all, mm -hmm. been, it's all been variations of how dare you say that? So what you're really saying is fill in the blank. So how dare you? And, mm -hmm. and that just has not cut it for me. And then you come along. I found your, your channel where you've done a series of excellent videos on Jordan Peterson. And I've listened to you talk about the anti-PC movement and so on. So you offered to debate Peterson. You yeah. are a real-life Marxist. You're not a dead-stuffed Marxist. You're not a cultural postmodern Marxist, whatever the fuck that means. You're a real-life Marxist, or mm -hmm. at least a wannabe Marxist. Yeah. Jordan Peterson is going all over the place telling people that the Marxists are not willing to, to debate him. And then you stood up and offered to debate him. And can you tell us the rest of that story? Sure. Well, the story is this. I actually wrote him about a year ago to ask him to be a guest on my podcast. That was before there was any book called 12 Rules for Life. And that was before he became the greatest intellectual in the world, according to the New York Times. Um, but it was not before he was having his moment, because his moment came about because of his opposition to Bill C-67, I think it is, the, the, the gender equality or gender identity part of the human rights bill in, in Canada. So I wrote to him then, I didn't get a response, and I've been willing to talk to him for all that this time. I would wanted to talk to him for all this time. And the reason I wanted to talk to him was because I saw 
a free speech movement building, and I am very dedicated to the principle of free speech, but I saw it building in a perverse way. It was always in relationship to social justice warriors, as if um, college campuses and blue-haired uh, academics were the biggest threat to free speech in the world. And I didn't think that was true, and I also thought that what one thing that troubled me was that uh, a certain kind of red baiting was always associated with what I've now come to call the anti-social justice warrior industry. So, like, if you talk, if you looked at Dave Rubin or Gadsad or Gavin McGinnis, say, or um, any one of these anti-social justice warrior types on YouTube, they always start out by saying, "Hey, here are the principles of liberal democracy. Here are the, you know, here are some vitally important principles of of what's in a good society. You know, for instance, the freedom of freedom of expression, freedom of thought, and these are being undermined by Marxists, Marxists in, in sheep clothing. You know, this sort of yes. conspiracy about cultural Marxism. It was there since it's been there." For a long time, but it, it sort of came into the mainstream around Gamergate is how I think of it, which is odd. That that would happen through that minor nerd culture fiasco, you know. But people like Sargon of Cod started talking about cultural Marxism, Marxism in a way that got heard around that time. So I wanted to talk to people about Marx in that arena. I wanted to go on uh, a major channel for the anti-social justice warrior wing of um, YouTube and say, hey, Marx is a, was an enlightenment thinker. He came out of that tradition. He was certainly not a postmodern type, and he didn't have the ideas that you ascribe to him. And cultural Marxism has its own history as a term, and we should talk about what that history is. And if you're going to talk about Marx and blame Marxism for these things, you should be right about what Marx wrote, and let's talk about it. Uh, and I never got... When I would write to these people, I either didn't hear back from them or I was told no. Who uh, I should interject are constantly saying, oh, the the left doesn't want to debate us. Right. You know, you know, and and so that kind of shows the the limitations of their own values of you know the value of of never deplatforming anyone, no matter how controversial their views. It, it just shows that they themselves tend to not hold themselves up to their own standards. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I want to point out also that it's not, I mean, I'm not a great, you know, academic intellectual. I'm not a university professor, for instance, but I'm fairly well positioned to do, to represent Marx in the media because I am in charge of a, a critical theory imprint out of the UK. So one which has a history of producing pretty major thinkers like Mark Fisher. It was uh, is a, a fairly dominant thinker on on the left and has been even more dominant since his death. Yeah, he's and, great. And Angela yeah, Nagel as well, who I love. Right, Angel, Angel Nagel. We published her. I I would say that we got l lucky to be the ones who published Angela Nagel's book, and so that puts me in a good position to rep represent the left. Also, uh, Graham Harmon and and others. Hmm. Uh, that does, that came before I started at Zero Books and others that have come after it means that you know my pedigree is okay. It's not like I'm like it's not like I'm just some guy in someone's in, in his mother's basement who wants to debate Mars. Like I, <laughs> I you know, I mean I'm not saying that you shouldn't debate those people either. I'm just saying a lot of times the criticism I'll hear back is well, you know who are you to to get on these channels? Why do you deserve their their time? And I think I can say that I deserve these people's time i mean you know i agree that, yeah i'm not trying to brag or anything but it just i think that's i think that's objectively true so me too um yeah. then P peterson i wrote to him actually to his publicist in december of last year and asked again if he wanted to come on the podcast and this was after he had tweeted to angela nagel not liking what she had said about him in one of her articles for i think it was jackman it might have been Current Affairs or The Baffler. Those are three three journals she writes for frequently. Anyway, I wrote to him and said, hey, um, uh, you know, we'd love to have you on the podcast uh, on Twitter. And then I wrote to his publicist and said, uh, you know, I'm the publisher of a critical theory imprint. We publish postmodern theorists. We publish Marxist theorists. Here are some people we've interviewed in the past, including Moish Pastone, who also recently died, who's a great Western Marxist, well-known uh, academic Marxist. And We'd love to have Jordan Peterson on to discuss 
cultural Marxism, uh, Nietzsche, you know, the Romantic tradition, and and I even sent sample questions. But what happened was they gave me a time, which was January twenty fourth. They said, "Yes, we'll do that. We can. Have, you can have an hour on this day if you can talk about his book, or we can use it to promote his book." Now, this was before his book blew up, right? They didn't know it was going to be number one on Amazon. They didn't know that Kathy Newman was going to make him a star. <laughs> um, right. So he, they were willing to talk to me. Maybe the new publicists didn't really understand what Peterson wanted, or uh, I'm not sure what happened, but they wrote back to me and canceled that appointment saying they'd reschedule another date. That was right around the new year. They, they told me that. And then... While I was waiting for a new date from them, Peterson went on Joe Rogan and said, Marxists never debate him. Marxists never invite him to, to, to talk. Mm. And that's when I started to go after him on Twitter about this because he, from my perspective, he was either misinformed or you know, lying. <laughs> yeah. Because I had talked to his team. He not only had... I invited him, but they'd agreed. I mean, this was something that had been scheduled. So he, at that point, Peterson uh, broke what? I think Rule 8, which is uh, always tell yes. the truth as well as you know it. So uh, to me, that's significant. I mean, everyone slips up. No one's morally perfect. I wouldn't say this makes him a charlatan or a bad person or something, but it's inconsistent. And he, if he continues to say Marxists won't debate him, that's a real problem because people like myself are willing to talk to him and willing to <laughs> Absolutely. Debate. I, and I mean, it's something that frustrates me about a lot of the right media, alt-light, alt-right, etc. So let's, there's so much that we can talk about here. And yeah. let, let's just go back to Jordan Peterson's moment of ascension when he was refusing to use uh, gender neutral pronouns and his huge fuss over that. And to anyone listening who, like me, is incredibly tired and sick to death of the, you know, free speech shit on campuses, I'm so sorry. We're just going to talk about it. You can yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. My apologies. I'm, yeah. Because I am so fucking tired of this subject. But it's still important, so let's talk about it. Yeah. There's something that strikes me as very disingenuous about Jordan Peterson's rise. Because from what I understand, his claim to fame, what got him on to shows like Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan and the and Godsod and the regular circuit, is this uh, you know, social justice warrior uprising against him on campus because he because of some bill in Canada that he believed it could be interpreted in such a way that that pronoun use was coerced mm -hmm. and that if he refused to use what he calls made up words, then he will be, I don't know, disciplined, put to prison. The, the entire premise strikes me as so absurd and dishonest, frankly, because I know trans people and I'm just like, do do trans people really want to put you into prison? Really? You're you're seeming a bit paranoid to me. And mm. and so his rise, his fame is predicated on this thing. And I mean that's what, of course there are other things going for him, you know, he's a he's a kind of a, a self-help guru and a stern father figure and he does mm. the whole Jungian archetype stuff, but yeah. really this was it. This is what launched him to stardom yeah. and it seems completely disingenuous to me. I, and so I'm wondering if in both there, there's a lot that seems disingenuous and I don't trust a lot of what I hear about the the culture wars on campus. I don't tr I it feels like there is a moral panic about moral panics on campus. And yeah. so if you could help me understand and just unpack this and and kind of unpack the layers here and give me your perspective on this. Okay, I generally do not cr criticize Jordan Peterson uh, around the, the pronoun question. Sure. Uh, and there's a couple reasons why I don't. One is I don't think it's clear uh, what the uh, effects of that bill will be in Canada. Sure. And as a U.S. citizen, I don't believe – I mean I like our Bill of Rights. I like the freedom of expression we have here. And I, to me that's important. And I do think that my vague understanding is that the, the Canadian system – 
doesn't protect free expression to the same degree that the U.S. system does. So I, and I, I may be wrong about that, but what I, I definitely think is true about Bill C-16 is that it, whatever effects it would have on free expression in Canada would be small, and that if there's an argument to be made, it's really about principle more than it is about legitimate suppression of or significant suppression or coercion of speech. But the principle is worth defending in and of itself, I think. So my stance towards that is I don't have a solid position on what the effects of Bill C-16 would be. I figure no one honestly should, when these bills are passed, then they are, the courts sort of determine how they're going to be interpreted. Right. Mm, so, yes. so, so probably what would happen is that uh, something eventually, maybe, would take years and years and years, would come to a court over pronoun usage, and it would be determined how to interpret the law. But at that, until that point, it's just anyone's guess as to, and I, there or you know, there are arguments in either in both on both sides of how to interpret the law. So now, but that's one. That's one question about the law itself. I don't think that's what this is really about for most people. What it's about for most people <clears throat> who get angry at Jordan Peterson about the transgender issue is about wanting to, on the one hand, say that he's paranoid, and on the other hand, really insist that people use gender pronouns that they think are appropriate for gender-fluid people and trans people. Wanting to th there to be real social sanction against people for having the wrong opinions about transgender politics and wanting to, to use their moral authority to to insist on that. And I um, I think there's a duplicitousness of, about how the left, and I include myself in, on the left, approaches this a good portion of the time. That what you'll hear people say is, of course he wouldn't be fined or imprisoned for using the wrong gender pronoun, but why would he be such a bastard not to? I mean, you know, don't you want to just give people their basic level respect and don't you know that using the wrong gender pronoun could lead someone to suicide hmm. so on the one hand they say of course it would never be enforced on the other hand they say it really ought to be <laughs> um right so i don't know i'm skeptical about how significant using the wrong pronoun is especially when it comes to gender neutral pronouns is in terms of people's psychological health i just think it's the weakest point to attack Peterson on. And so the reason he's famous is because people are tired of a certain approach to uh, politi left politics and moralistic, kind of smug approach. And the, the idea that we can just say to you, hey, this is what's right. And if you don't do it, you're an immoral person and you should be condemned for your immorality. That, that approach to politics is the wrong one. So I don't go after him on that. What I try to go after him on are the things that he says that he believes in beyond just that he believes that people shouldn't be coerced into speech or should that free speech should be protected. Like, I want to go after him on his conservatism, his, his market absolutism, his, his conservative politics in the realm of culture, and his broader vision. So, and I'll, I'll just tell you one little quick story to put a period at the end of this part. When I found out about Peterson, it was from someone on the left and who linked to a confrontation he had with some students after he gave a speech. It's a, it's a pretty famous viral video at this point. It's one of the early ones that kind of made the rounds where he was being shouted at by trans activists and he was trying to talk to them and they wouldn't let him talk. And it was coming after there had been similar things going on at, on Ivy League campuses where liberal professors were being shouted down uh, by students uh, in a way that seemed grossly unfair and and illiberal to many. And so this was being shared with me in the same way that the Halloween costume controversy at Yale had was shared with me. And the person on the left was saying, look at these how these kids are treating their professors. Look at how irrational college the college students are becoming. And I said, yeah, but do you know who Peterson is? Because I immediately looked into like who he was and watched a few of his Clips and said, this guy is a reactionary. I mean, it's not like they're wrong to oppose him politically. They're just not doing it very well.
So moving on from from the whole, you know, free speech on college campuses debacle, yeah. everyone yeah. can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, yeah. let, let's get into what Peterson actually says and believes. Right. In one of your videos, you talk about Peterson's conspiracy theory of cultural Marxism. And this is this is one of his theories that he just hammers constantly. And it isn't just Peterson. This is some this is something that has is kind of around on the right on on internet spaces. Could you unpack the boogeyman of the cultural Marxists and why Peterson is wrong about that? Yeah, and and where I want to start from is that what goes on, I think, is that the right-wing cultural critic like Peterson looks to problems that really exist in society. Let's say, for instance, the um, collapse of the nuclear family, just as an example. And they look to the negative consequences of these problems, and they point to real moments of alienation that we experience in different ways in, in our lives. And then they try to explain why this is happening and what's, what's the, the root of it is. So what Peterson does, is he points to postmodernism and what he calls neo-Marxism, but used to call cultural Marxism as the culprit behind social dis- disintegration in our society. And where I would want to disagree with him is a, what I want to disagree with him about is not that there is social disintegration, but what is causing it and what we can do about it and what society, and maybe fundamental things like what holds societies together to begin with. So Peterson wants to say that the reason the nuclear family, for instance, is under threat is because of the cultural changes that have occurred since, let's say, the 60s, the um, way feminist critiques of patriarchal authority have undermined the nuclear family. Uh, He wants to say that the loosening up of sexual mores is what's undermined uh, our cultural understanding of what it is to be a man uh, or what it is to be a woman, and that in general there's been an attack on cultural norms from the left, whether you want to call these people postmodernists or cultural Marxists or neo-Marxists. What I would say to him is that there has been a thoroughgoing critique of our cultural norms, but the reasons behind it are the same reasons that you point to. In other words, the disintegration, the alienation, the cultural confusion that we experience is what's motivating a left critique. It's our, these critiques of the norms is our attempt to understand what's going wrong and what we need to do to make the world work more completely and work in a meaningful way that's sustaining and, and egalitarian and, and it leaves, lives up to the, our values. And, mm. and it's values that, by the way, Peterson doesn't reject, not entirely anyway. So there's the difference between Peterson and someone like myself. It's not so much in what, we, what problems we want to talk about or what we see is wrong in the world, but what we think the causes are for those problems. Whereas it seems to me that what and correct me if I'm wrong on this, what Peterson is saying is that the left is responsible for those problems or encouraging those problems in some way. So he is placing the blame at the feet of the left when the reality is that both him and someone like you are trying to address the same problems but have different views of why it is caused. Yeah, okay. and so, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. He kind of, in a certain sense, he's blaming the messenger. Yes. Now that's not unto- that. Look, there are reasons to get angry with left critics. Absolutely. For instance, if their criticism is poor, then they're not going to help the problem, and they might even inadvertently make the problem worse. Right. Mm. The same thing's true of right-wing critics. Um, yes. You know, if you think, for instance, like I do, that one of the things that's undermining social stability is the commodification of our culture and the way that markets are having their way with us. Someone who says, oh, the problem is that we are regulating the markets too much. Um, They're trying to address the same problem, but from the completely opposite perspective. And if they have their way, from my perspective, things are only going to get worse. So the fact that, you know, it's not like from a right wing perspective, the left should should be blameless if they were honest. I mean, I don't think he's being disingenuous in what he says. It's just that he has a very different 
critique and understanding of society. And it, for Peterson, what drives society most of all is cultural ide- ideology, cultural norms, um, what, what we believe, who we think we are, uh, the stories we tell ourselves. And from my perspective, what drives uh, society most of all is the ways in which we make the world, the ways in which we uh, work together to produce goods and, and the things that we need for life and distribute them. Uh, so I have a materialist approach to understanding society. Mm, yes. And so this whole cultural Marxist thing, he also puts postmodernist in there. He kind of marries Marxism and postmodernism, which is kind of a, a contradiction in terms. Can you talk about that some? Sure, because postmodernists actually agree with Peterson more than Marxists do. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the thing that always struck me when I was listening to Peterson and as I'm reading his book. And by the way, dear listeners, I have been binging his fucking book for the past week in preparation for this interview and listening to his thin frog-like voice uh, narrate his book. And uh, there was one point at which he actually starts sobbing during during his narration of his book because he's just so moved by his prose. He, he cries in the in the, uh, in his book on tape. He, yes, he does. No, I, I'm not going to say that for sure, but uh, because I wasn't seeing him, but I'm listening to him. And he's he's describing some, you know, very moving thing, you know, the nature of meaning. And it's just, you know, metaphor after meta, you know, meaning is when all the parts of the symphony come together layer upon layer of me. And he starts weeping during the narration of his own book because he's just so moved by his own prose. And I was closing the store and I'm, you know, doing the books and I'm trapped in this office late at night and I'm exhausted listening to Jordan Peterson and his frog-like voice weeping at the beauty of his own prose. And I'm just like, I'm in hell right now. I just, <laughs> I am, <laughs> yeah. I am well, so know, done. <laughs> I saw, I'm a science fiction writer as well as a leftist, right? So sure. I went and saw... Um, Harlan Ellison read once, and he cried at the end of one of his own short stories, and I thought it was a moment of bad taste. Yes, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's kind of masturbatory, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> but you've got to understand why that's effective, and it's less effective for a short story writer than it is for someone like Peterson, because, you know, Peterson is analyzing and prescribing remedies for real problems that people are suffering under, yes. Right. Yeah. So when they see him, you know, it's that Bill Clinton moment. I feel your pain. When they see him move, be moved to tears by what he's describing, then that's authentic. I mean, it yes. feels like he really cares about the problems and about the audience. Right. You know. So he, what is missed? It was too easy to miss. Is that he's also crying. At his own analysis. It's not that he's just crying because he encounters some problem in the world bare as it really is. And he's moved by the tragedy that he sees. I just have to I just have to pause you. Am I hearing chickens in the background? Yes, (laughs) that's okay. I've just I was just uh, I was just wondering, do continue. You know, in Portland, when you cross the the border, uh, they give you a chicken, a backyard chicken. (laughs) You fucking hipster. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a, I'm a port, I'm a Portlandia stereotype. Um, Excellent. So I'm, I'm. You, you could find people just like me on the TV show Portlandia. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah. So what, what was I saying? Oh yeah. The the the. There, he's crying at his own analysis. He takes his own uh, interpretation to be true, fundamentally true, you know, kind of in a self-evident way, so much so that he's moved by it. And that's that's sort of dangerous. You, you know, you want to have enough distance from your own ideas so that you can debate them, so you, that you can, you know, develop a discourse that includes free expression and for, uh, the free pursuit of ideas and interpretations. So when he cries at his, at his own writing, he is no different from the people who are, insist that their interpretation about, for instance, what really puts transgender people at risk is not just right, but obvious, and anyone who's immoral at all should share it. He's taking his interpretation to be completely uh, just self-evident, 
when he does that, it's just that's the move that he's making. That you have just put your finger on something that has really frustrated me about him for a long time. It is a lack of distance from his own beliefs so that there is not room. There is no margin for error. There is no margin for self-criticism. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous thing because, you know, I, I listen to and we probably won't get into any of the Jungian archetype stuff or the religion stuff in this conversation. Yeah. But when I listen to him talk about his interpretations of myth and scripture and so on, I I can understand why these interpretations are helpful for him. You know, it's, it's like listening to him talk. I'm like, I can get why that is a helpful way to see that story for you. And maybe it is somewhat universal, but then he takes it to such a degree, to such a universal degree, he turns the subjective into the objective in a way that I find just untenable, in a way that I find uh, unsustainable. Uh, where he says this story, the story of Adam and Eve, the story, or even you know the story of Pinocchio. He loves Disney movies, um, <laughs> except he, for um, uh, Frozen. He hates Frozen. Frozen. Yeah, right. yeah, Frozen. Because there's a lesbian subtext in that. Because he doesn't like them. exactly. <laughs> but you know when when he interprets these stories, I'm like you know I get how that interpretation is helpful to you and might be helpful to other people and I'm kind of glad you're sharing it it's it's not a bad interpretation but it, he then solidifies it and makes it objective and universal or claims it is in a way that I just don't think it is and yeah. there isn't there isn't much self-doubt with Peterson and I'm very suspicious of anyone who doesn't demonstrate that kind of humility. Yeah. Well, I, I have a weird kind of position on universality because like I, as a Marxist, and I think any Enlightenment thinker is always questing after uh, uh, understanding that can be universal. And so I uh, don't begrudge Peterson his questing after a universal principle. And I don't begrudge him his ideological commitments. Right? I think that it's important to truly believe what you say and that if you think that your uh, interpretation of the world is correct, you shouldn't bend uh, just based on the fact that it's possible to interpret it the other some other way. Th that's not my problem. My problem is when you think your interpretation is correct, you still have to hold on to the fact that it is an interpretation. And as such, it is open to argumentation and, and, and revision. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. And it doesn't mean it isn't the best interpretation around. It very well could be. And as such, it should be, you know, there should be a struggle for it to become kind of universal. But it has to be an open struggle of free debate, uh, you know, uh, if it's not going to be a, a kind of a violence. And once you you rely on violence to get your ideas across, then you're no longer being rational and, you're, and your ideas become far less defensible. I mean, they, they're clearly – people turn to violence to get their ideas across – because their ideas have are self-contradictory or have problems that they can't overcome some other way. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that, and I, I might as well be quoting Peterson now. I mean, right. I think he would say something similar. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so, yeah, I don't begrudge him his ideological commitments. I don't have the same ones. Like, but, but that, that's another thing. Like, um, when it when he defends Jung and that tradition, he defends him in a way that is somewhat vicious, especially when it comes to people who have very, very different interpretations of psychoanalysis. So Lacan has come up in conversations with Peterson, uh, you know, rarely, but he has, been, he has been mentioned. Lacan has been lumped in as a postmodernist by Peterson and called evil. Yeah. Not, not wrong. Evil. So if you come to Peter, Peterson with a Lacanian interpretation of psychoanalysis and a critique of Jung's theories of the collective unconscious based on a Lacanian understanding of the unconscious, you're not going to simply be debated with. You're going to be debated with as someone who is coming to, with an evil theory, mm. with an ideology, you know, which – and so there's no recognition of his own ideological – you know, his own – the fact that he has an ideology himself – and there's no willingness to, to engage honestly with critics of his ideology.
So I'm really glad that you bring that up. He does villainize a lot of other ideologies, really, really villainizes uh, postmodernism, Marxism, etc. He has one video where he basically says, if you're a Marxist, how many failed experiments, how many deaths do you need in order for it to be proven to you that Marxism doesn't work? Mm-hmm. And then he basically goes on to say, if you're a Marxist, he implies you're an idiot, you might be evil, <laughs> right. be- because you are you are Marxist in the face of the horrific abuses of state and mass murders and so on of the 20th century. You know, it got to the point where there's just no way you could be a Marxist, especially after Solzhenitsyn, because Solzhenitsyn wrote this great book, which is actually out of print for crying out loud, which I've actually been able to popularize like mad over the last three months, which is, you know, really mind-boggling. And what Solzhenitsyn did in his genius manner, because he's up there with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, like, man, that guy, he's a towering intellect and a, a person of spectacular moral force, you know, like, he put himself on the line for that book. He memorized it when he was in the, in the prison camps. It's about, it's three volumes that thick, you know, it's like 2,000 pages of someone screaming, the smartest person you've ever met, the wisest person you've ever met, screaming in outrage for 2,000 pages. It's no bloody wonder it's out of print. <laughs> Anyways, what Solzhenitsyn did was take on this claim you often hear the radical leftists make about communism, about Marxism. They say, well, that wasn't real Marxism. It's like, okay, well, how many countries do you need to disprove your thesis? How many millions of people have to die before you might admit that you're wrong? Well, obviously more than 100 million, because that's the approximate total. That's probably an underestimate, but we'll be conservative, because adding another 10 million doesn't really make that much difference. And he places Marxists on the other side of this line in the sand where if if you're a Marxist, then you're somehow evil in a fundamental way for holding that ideology. Can you talk about that some, his, and, and that analysis he has of, um, of Marxism? Sure, it's, it's extremely rhetorically effective. Yes, and, it is. And, yeah, and the reason it's so effective is because it's not entirely wrong. I mean, when, again, like I started this podcast by saying I'm a wannabe Marxist, and part of the reason why I called myself that was because the history of the 20th century is the history of what calls itself Marxism going terribly wrong. Exactly. So I don't blame anyone looking back on, say, the atrocities that went on under Stalin in, in the Soviet Union or under Mao. Uh, in China, any of the people who look at that and say, I'm not that interested in Marx. I, I understand it. The, the truth, though, is that Mao didn't read Marx himself very much until after he took power, and certainly there are many ways to critique Maoism from a Marxist perspective, like saying mm. you're not understanding Marx. And the same certainly applies to Stalin. If you understand Marx's categories, you'll know that uh, Stalin sort of just chewed them away to legitimize the continuation of wage labor and exploitation of workers, even under, you know, so supposedly socialism. And, right. you know, you can't, you can't do that. Now, what Peterson would say is, oh, what you're saying is that it's not true Marxism. And, and I, yeah, in a way I am. What I'm saying is it doesn't, what happened didn't successfully operate on the basis of Marx's critique of capitalism. What I would say, and not every Marxist would agree with me at all here, and this is my own you know, I, I'm aligned with a certain sect of people who interpret Marx a particular way. But I, what I would say is that the Soviet Union was capitalist. Uh, you know, China was capitalist. That they did not escape from the capitalist logic that determines the way our world works. And that there had there has been no true revolution. There's been that the Russian Revolution was a bourgeois revolution. It was more than more than it was a socialist one. Mm. Uh, even though it was aiming at socialism, so was so was the Re- French Revolution. Was uh, good portions of it were aiming was aiming at socialism. So the other thing I would say is that look, socialism and the dream of egalitarianism, and the dream of a society uh, where self mastery uh, and political power being distributed um, fairly and justly, and, and now you can refute 
Marxist ideas, but you, you can't blame those ideas for the failures of what I'd call modernity overall, with, which, and, you know, the Soviet Union was part of that project. But so was the, the French Revolution. So was the war in Vietnam. Yes. Uh, you know, there, so was the, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. These are all horrible atrocities that have happened under conditions of modernity. Or any of the horrific exploitations of, of people in less privileged countries. You know, my partner has done a lot of work in Haiti. Yeah. And, and the stories he tells of just the ravages of capitalism and the, the rise of these regimes, uh, Papa Doc and, and the Duvalier regime, and how they, they, the way in which they tortured people and the way in which they subjugated people and how closely tied many of these regimes are to, you know, excessive capitalism, what mm. really strikes me is just how much Peterson is blind to the other side of the equation, where, mm. ye, you know, if we're going to lay all of these deaths at the feet of Marx, well, then we've got to also lay all the just as many deaths, if not more, at the feet of Locke. And that's right. and that's a point that you make in one of your videos critiquing Peterson. Mm -hmm. Right. I would say that liberal modernity itself has a very bad track record if you just start stacking bodies. And um, exactly. And so, but that being said, I think that someone like Steven Pinker, as much as I don't actually align myself with them politically, has something some some merit when he points out there's been a vast improvement under modernity as well that, that you know cap uh, the, the enlightenment has brought all sorts of innovations and improvements to people's lives so our life expectancy is longer uh in general things are less violent it's hard to believe but it's true and and so i i believe that we should hold on to some of the principles of the enlightenment that informed marx as well um but you know i want to point out uh, that as much as we can bash Peterson, there are some things that he says or that he speaks to anyway that are worthwhile because yes and, and the reason I want to point that out is because I don't want people who like him to be walking away from this saying yeah 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 they all they ever do is tear people down or I you know I don't want people to walk away feeling like they shouldn't read his book or get any or shouldn't get any good out of him you know right and you're not you're not bad for liking him. I mean, there are reasons to like him. Exactly. And, um, there are reasons to like Joseph Campbell, too. Yes. Who I think was a kind of a precursor thinker. I don't actually find myself convinced by Campbell, but I think that he is really interesting and rewarding and intellectually nourishing to engage with. And I think Peterson is maybe a little less intellectually nourishing because of his, his approach, because he, he takes his interpretation to be so self-evident a, a good portion of the time. So he doesn't ha lead people to be as curious as maybe engaging people who engage with so, uh, Joseph Campbell might be led to be. But nonetheless, these things are speaking to real problems in the world, and they are interesting. Like, it's interesting to think about mythology and the human propensity to imagine uh, the meaning in the world and to think about how our stories about who we are have led us to have certain ways of life and and are essential to feeling that life has a purpose and that you know that we can't simply abandon that approach to to life the religious impulse is is also an Im impulse towards embracing life yes and, and that you can't ignore that fact so i think there's some really good things to glean from even peterson even if you don't end up ultimately agreeing with his worldview and that was in another video i mean my very first video about him pointed that out it was aimed at far leftists yes not, not at at uh peterson fans it was saying look we need to engage the right differently because they're speaking to things that we think are problems too and we need to be able to understand what's motivating the these conservative rebels i call them to to attack what they think of as a marxist status quo <laughs> right really just capitalist modernity uh, so basically what i'm hearing is 
and and I agree with this if this is what you're saying, is it's totally okay to like Peterson or to find nourishment in Peterson or be encouraged by Peterson. Just don't do so without a critical eye. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I ultimately, like if my kid, I have a kid in university and it's home for spring break. So if my kid came to me and said, hey, I'm really interested in Jordan Peterson. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to get his Maps of Meaning uh, self-authorship program and I want to talk to him on Skype and everything. I would say to him, uh, you know, can't you spend your money a little bit more wisely than that? And, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you don't need that. But But if you really liked it, I wouldn't condemn him for being, you know, immoral person or falling off the wagon of liberal uh, morality i would want to discuss it with him though absolutely and i last night i my younger kid i have a 13 year old son came to me and said hey i want to watch a youtube video i found um and talk about it with you and it was um a youtube video called liberty tunes is the channel and oh yeah so that that's an interesting channel i've i've watched that yeah and there were arguments being made. It was an argument about whether or not women should have their birth control paid for by the state. Right. And the arguments made there for a 13-year-old kid who's grappling with basics like, you know, how does the government work, were actually far too brief and not, you know, not worked out well enough to give him the ability to think about them. It was all really operating on the level of emotive appeal. Yes. Uh, so it was really worthwhile to sit down and just go through it. Like we watched it two times and paused it and talked about each thing and then watched other videos to explain, you know, like, why do we have a nation? What is the role of the nation state in, in society? What do we use it for? That kind of thing. And so I think it's really worthwhile to engage the right, something like Liberty Tunes, and think about what they're saying rather than say, oh, he's a libertarian channel that's a right winger he's bad and how dare you and how dare you and you know that pretty much summarizes why i wanted to have you on the show because i would not describe myself as a sophisticated thinker on any of this you know i i feel like i'm pretty sophisticated in understanding you know lgbt issues i'm much more of like a literature guy and theology guy but this stuff is not something that i understand very well but it's so prevalent and what i love so much about what you do is you do essentially with us your listeners kind of sit us down (laughs) you know i i feel like i've been in the position of your you know of your 12 year old son (laughs) listening to your show where you kind of sit us down and instead of saying how dare this person say this thing you know Mm -hmm. off with their head you really engage in a good faith conversation. And that is just so meaningful to me because there are things that there are, there are things about Peterson that I admire. I admire his dedication to telling the truth. I admire his passion to understand the atrocities of the of the 20th century you know i admire these things about i admire his desire to make people's lives better and i think he's genuinely motivated to uh make everyone's lives better i think he truly wants that and i admire all those things and then there are things that i find very unattractive about him and so it's been refreshing to talk to someone who doesn't just cast him in as angelic or demonic, you know, who casts him truly as a human being. What, this is a big question. I'm not even sure if it's worth asking, but I'll go ahead and and try. Okay, let's see if I can handle it, if it's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just very broad and and it might not have much substance because of that. But what is it about Peterson that you think appeals so much to young men in particular. And, you know, I can think about this in terms of myself because I have often at cer- at various points in my life felt alienated, cut adrift, directionless. And I understand how someone like Peterson could come in like a meteor and just feel like he lights the path, you know. But your analysis as someone who is older and wiser and has children, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, which I am not, I do not, Mm -hmm. what is your 
understanding of that. Why do you think he appeals to young men in particular so much? You know, I know he does. And I'll, I'll say this. I have a 21-year-old son. He's my eldest son. And he watches Peterson with me sometimes and he just says, oh, my God, that guy is so annoying. Why does anyone like him? And, <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm sitting there going, well, I kind of think he, he kind of makes me feel like, you know, I've got a good dad. <laughs> and I'm 47, right? So I think it really is a matter of who you are and not so much your demographic. Sure. Like, like I – I think what he, what is appealing about Peterson, what I because I get it with him, like I get it, I uh, why people find him appealing. I'm not sure I can put it into words, but it, it's something that's sort of a dirty secret, maybe that I understand why he's appealing. Well, first of all, he's a role model for intellectual masculinity. Yes, absolutely. So, so if you are someone who wants to be uh, masculine in, in an intellectual way, sophisticated way, in a worldly way, rather than in a macho way. In other words, if you're not a jock or a Chad, as they'd say, yes, <laughs> uh, then, <laughs> you might relate to uh, Peterson. So he he's an, uh, he gives especially white boys a role model mm. for how to be cool and competent and masculine. Yeah. And, he, you know, like you said at the start, there's that. But then the question is, why do we need that so much right now? I mean, like, wh why is it him and not? Because, like, when I was in my 20s, I would, I, you know, hook on to these sort of fatherly f figures that were radical intellectuals who I liked. For me, it was Terrence McKenna in the 90s. You know? <laughs> <You're> awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. And so... Like, I thought he was really cool, and that tells you maybe a lot about how debauched my 20s were. But uh, <laughs> I think that people liked him in certain subcultures and certain demographics liked him for a similar reason. Not that so much the masculine thing, although that was there as a subtext, but just the role model for how to be uh, cool and and smart, you know, and, and not have to fall into these the kinds of standards that people uh, generally associate with masculinity or generally associate with being cool. Because, you know, McKenna was sort of nerdy. He sort of maybe sounded a little bit like Peterson. I'm not sure. But anyway, so I think that's that. I think that people kind of long after gurus and father figures in this culture overall because uh, we do have a crisis of meaning. So that's why Peterson can come up and fill that need. But then the question is, look, why is it such somebody who – in a different context would just be such a drag. Clean your room. Exactly. <laughs> and his advice, and you know, this is what gets me. You know, I mentioned at the top of the show that there have been two or three pieces of advice that he gives that I've genuinely found helpful. But, you know, what I didn't say is it's only two or three pieces of advice out of an entire book. You know, it most of his advice... Well, okay, so for example, he could I'm just going to interrupt you for he could so easily slip into being the church lady from Saturday Night Live. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, it's an entire book of platitudes like tell the truth and clean your room, get your life in perfect order before you try to change the world, which I actually think is bad advice because if you try to get your life in perfect order, then I'm I'm sorry, you're never going to change the world, but that's another point. Yeah, and also um, you're 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 not separate from the world. Exactly. You're the world is your life. Yeah. And um that has to be part of your life. You can't Exactly. Uh, engaging with the world and trying to make your way in the world and is part of changing it, you know? And so Precisely. if you're going to get yourself in order, finding competency in the world and as you try to act on the world is part of that. Precisely. And, and so this is one thing that I just don't really understand. I get his appeal in that he's passionate and I'm someone who's very susceptible to passion. I'm, and I've said yeah. this before on the podcast, I'm just so glad that I wasn't like scooped up by the Scientologists or something <laughs> when I was in my late <laughs> right. teens because I would have right. been so susceptible to that. And, right. and so I'm, I'm drawn to passion, but then when I kind of go beneath the surface, I find his advice just really boring. <laughs> you know, right. I find it really boring and not very well articulated. And then it's bolstered with this, you know, with these long, weird monologues about 
archetype and chaos and Medusa and Pinocchio, yeah. and I'm just not following, and it and it's very boring. But I think what it speaks to is that there he is filling a void. There is a need for him, even though he is often boring. It, that I feel like that should raise some red flags that young men feel cut adrift or a lot of men feel cut adrift and a figure like Peterson who really has nothing more than uh, authoritative stance you know he cuts an authoritative figure and speaks with a lot of passion someone like him can fill that void even though his solutions often feel vacuous I feel like that should be a red flag for us culturally it really um, is I agree and I think that it's symptomatic of something that's wrong I I tend to think that the left is in the driver's seat, you know, not in so much as uh, the way Peterson thinks it is, but in terms of like trying to do something about the problems in the world and make some good suggestions. I, I'm on the left, so I figure it's our responsibility to, to make the world a better place, right? Absolutely. So, and I, the fact that we can't engage with someone like Peterson and be more interesting than him is to me a real red flag. I mean, yeah. That there's no one who um, can be as compelling as he is and promise meaning the way he does, but from a left perspective. And it, by the way, it doesn't have to be a daddy. You know, it can be uh, a woman, a mother figure, but it it could be uh, or just a a a, per, a a strong person who could be man or woman or or gender fluid, as long as they are. Uh, speaking to what's in everybody, uh, yeah. this desire to find a, a more free society and to be creatively engaged in the world without resorting to moralism and trying to shame people into submission. I think that the left could really use a figure that could do that. Um, yeah, what I'm hearing is like we need like a uh, – uh, the way um, – Oh, what's his, his name just vanished out of my mind. Uh, a science communicator. Uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson? Neil, we need like a Neil deGrasse Tyson for, for liberalism. Someone who can come and share the, you know, the, the brilliance of Neil deGrasse Tyson is he's a storyteller. Mm -hmm. and, and he's able to get on stage and convey these incredible stories of science and discoveries and what happens on the sign on you know on the molecular level or what happens out in space and he's able to tell these stories with passion we need someone like that uh for the left yeah i i would not say not for liberals but for radical wannabe marxists like myself we need that absolutely <laughs> yeah so is well, there, do you have any, any other questions for me? I, I think that's basically it. I mean, we could really talk about this subject forever. And so I don't want to keep you on the line. If you want to have me back on sometime to talk specifically and maybe on more equal footing, in other words, like you can tell me things too about uh, post-Christianity and, and um, what is so appealing to, to Christians about Peterson, I'd be glad to do it because I'm really interested in how what is essentially, I think, a pagan philosophy is being picked up by Christians. And, and yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. That would be great. And I would love to have you on the show again at some point. You're really interesting to talk to. I've learned a lot. And basically what I hear from this conversation, you know, if there's going to be a nice tidy package, a nice tidy moral here, I guess what I'm hearing is it's okay to enjoy someone like Peterson or to be challenged and uh, and to engage someone like Peterson, but to just not do it uncritically. And that every public figure, every thinker period will have strengths and weaknesses and to just not swallow the entire thing hook, line, and sinker. Right. Um, I say that as someone who considers him to be a class enemy, by the way. But, you know, like, uh, what, what, when... Uh, and uh, I'm kidding. I just want to say I'm kidding. But when that, after revolution, he will be going to the gulag. But, but uh, <laughs> he's he's been writing. I only, he's been fantasizing about the gulag for so long. It would long. satisfy him so much to be in the gulag. You it know, he would. It's like Johnny Cash work. singing about prison. You know, <laughs> John. <laughs> uh, see now, right there. Like, uh, the, now, it's like, ah, now we see the violence in the Marxist imagination. 
Exactly. Right. We're <laughs> fantasizing about sending him to the gulag. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. Well, right. Doug, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope my listeners have enjoyed this. For those of you who love my work and want to support it, please go to sbradfordlong.com. You can read my numerous articles there on faith and doubt, mental health and LGBT issues. Also, if you love this show, if you find yourself listening to the show every week and looking forward to it every week, please just do me a tiny favor. Please go to iTunes or wherever you listen and write a kind five-star review for me that will really, really help. Please keep uh, sending me messages. I love hearing from you. Uh, please keep responding to the show and please keep sharing the show. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. The music is by The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. And I will see you next week. Oh,